0: Our scripture text this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 2b through 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs.
1: I think it's probably... uh intuitive to us that we warn those that we love. Uh, we, it's an expression of love, really. You tend to warn those people that are most important to you. You warn them of the dangers of whatever they're involved in. So when I was learning to drive, my dad would be always mindful of warning me about driving too fast or not giving enough room when it's raining to stop or the blind spots, the parts, you know, when a car is to the side of you, you can't see in the rear view or the side mirrors. And I think love kind of propels us. I did the same thing with my children. You know, you love them, and so you want to warn them of certain things. Life isn't all instruction. There are warnings. We need warnings. Uh, With the interns, I love these interns, and we have opportunity to warn them about the nature of ministry and the difficulties that they'll face and how to best prepare to handle those difficulties. Well, here I think Paul is turning to conclude his letter and he's giving us these warnings, these warnings about finishing well. <clears throat> he says, teach and urge these things. You see there at the beginning, and the second half of the second verse, he's saying teach and urge these things, not just looking back at how we ought to honor one another. Let's not forget that. The nature of the church, at least the relationships in the church, are founded on the basis of honor. We're honoring, we're, we're being kind, truthful, with grace with one another. And, and this is how the world sees that our gathering is different than all the other gatherings of the world, because we have a certain respect and honor and love and willingness to sacrifice for each other. But when Paul said teach and urge these things, he wasn't just speaking about about how we honor one another, but also these warnings. He's telling Timothy, teach and urge these warnings that we can finish well. In our passage that Melanie read, there's really three areas that he warns us. Uh, First is that he speaks about this growing in godliness, right? he, He kind of frames it around these false teachers. False teachers have always been Saddled by the church, and they'll always be there. And they'll always be harmful to us, kind of distracting and diverting us. So he's talking about growing in the godliness of sound words. That is something that we must do to finish well. That There is no static position in the, Catholic, in, the, uh, in the church. There's always movement forward or movement back. And then secondly, he speaks about a godliness that we're to pursue, but a godliness with contentment, not, a, not a, a godliness that's distracted. And we see that in 6 to 8. And then thirdly, we see this idea of guarding our hearts because of the things of this world are nice, the gifts of God are nice, and they can become more to us than they ought to be. And you see that in 9 and 10. So three warnings here. And again, hear the warning from one who loves, not as kind of a chiding, but an encouragement to be aware. Uh, So first, this idea of of growing in the knowledge of Christ. Look with me at 3 to 5. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus um, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, so Paul is, in the context of false teaching, he's saying this, that we're to pursue uh, the sound words of Jesus. Jesus. The sound words of our Lord. that's That's where godliness comes from. Now, that word sound really means healthy. So he's using a medical metaphor here. He's saying that the words of Jesus, the apostolic teaching, produces a sort of health in us. And you see that because he says it accords or it produces a godliness in your life. Good teaching provides good living. If you hear the teaching and you embrace the sound words of our Lord, then your life will be reflected of that same health from the doctrine. In other words, the doctrine of Christ will lead to good deeds, good living, healthy living. Uh, so when I the first time I met Jesus Christ and I came by faith to believe in him, uh, my life was, I lived very selfishly and in, in very, very dark places, hearing the words of Jesus, reading through the Gospels, had never read through the Bible, but reading through the Gospels, learning about all the teaching of the Christian faith, and it began to convict me, it began to challenge me, my life began to change. The way I looked at marriage was now different, the way I looked at parenting was now different, the way I looked at money was different, the way I looked at the idea of forgiveness, the way I looked at at uh, integrity in the marketplace, all these things of my life were beginning to change toward a, a healthier end. I had other friends who did not make the same change. They didn't come to faith. Their lives continued in, in often very self destructive ways. Uh, but my life, as it were, kind of became healthier because of the sound words of the Lord. And it continues to be that way. It, doesn't start, it, it starts at conversion, but it doesn't stop there. That as you, were, as you and I are reading the scriptures, uh, w- we read them and, and we're convicted by that. Uh, you, you read the gospel and you hear about the forgiveness and then y- your mind goes to, who have I walked before without forgiving them? Or, or, or some conflict that hasn't been resolved. Or some half-truths that I've spoken to that I need. And, and you read, so there's this movement towards health that Paul's speaking about. These, these sound words of the Lord, these healthy words, bring forth a healthy lifestyle. Uh, So this is part of what Paul's warning to Timothy is, you have to continue to pursue in this godliness, in in listening to the words, but, but more than listening, like each week you come and you hear me explain some part of scripture, and the expectation is that you leave and you think, where are the encouragements that I can draw Where are the adjustments I need to make so that that incremental change takes place so that you're different next year? That's why I ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus more each year? Because there's an expectation by the Spirit of God applying the Word of God that your lives will be not perfect, not perfect, Uh, but it's that constant, slow, incremental change. Uh, now now you see that Paul's encouraging us towards, towards listening and living in light of the sound words because of these false teachers. Notice these false teachers are giving a different doctrine, one that doesn't agree, he says, with the sound words. In other words, it's a different doctrine. It, it, it's an, it, look at verse 4. It says it, it develops an unhealthy craving. Uh, so there you see the counterpart, the sound or healthy words. Now you have unhealthy cravings. It, it, it makes you sick. And you see that in the personality and the personal lives of these false teachers. He says they're they're conceited, they're puffed up, they're ignorant. Uh, They they have unhealthy cravings for controversies. So so you see it in their own lives, that unhealthiness begin to manifest itself. And then you see it in the fruit of their ministries. Notice what it says there in 5, it says, and it produces envy and dissension and slander. And so you begin to see, not just in their lives, but in their personal ministry, the fruit of false teaching. Paul's saying we have to listen to these sound words to be healthy. If you listen to a different doctrine, then it's going to lead to a measure of of unhealth. And you see really the heart of the matter, though, in these false teachers. Look at the end of five, because he says uh, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Uh, what these teachers were doing, these false teachers, is they were using religion, they were using the teachings to advance their own end. So remember in this day, a teacher would make his money from students, and students would come and listen to him, and they would pay to learn. And of course, the more students you would have, the more money you would make. And so the tendency would be to uh, water down or to dilute the gospel, to kind of soften some of the edges of the demands of the teaching of the New Testament and to dilute those to increase. So they were using religion as a means for their own personal gain. They, They were using God to advance themselves. Uh, So simply there in 3 to 5, you see that we are to pursue a godliness from the sound words of the Lord. Now some of the takeaways for you, what what I'd like you to be thinking about, what I've been pondering this week, is do you see the relationship between the way you think about God and your life? I, I know that may seem like simple stuff, But but the doctrine that you hold is going to produce the deeds in your life. Now, I know many of you think, I'm not really into doctrine too much. I just want to live for Jesus. But I want you to see the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about life. All of you are theologians at some level. Your theology might not be comprehensive. It may not be systematic. But you all have thoughts about who God is and what God expects. You all have thoughts about what makes for a good life. Uh, When should forgiveness be given? You all have these thoughts on how you run your life. And if the sound words of our Lord Jesus, as he talks about, if they're not influencing the way you think about these things, then your life is going to produce things that are unhealthy. Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, the ideas... And images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. The the way we think, the images, the thoughts that we have, they govern our actions. So if they're not being influenced by the sound words of the Lord, then we're not going to be progressing in this incremental move in godliness. So I want you to see that the way you think about life, if it's not influenced by the sound words of the Lord you're just going to be shooting from the hip, or you're going to be shooting from experience, or you're going to be shooting from some television personality that's saying, hey, this is what you ought to do in this situation. Your mind is going to be influenced by something, and you're going to develop thoughts about forgiveness and life and death and eternal judgment. You're going to be having thoughts, and if it's not influenced by these sound, healthy words, then your life will be in accordance with what you're learning. So there's a call here uh, that whether you're 15 or whether you're 85, that we're pressing into these sound words of the Lord. What does Jesus say about this? How does he speak to issues of forgiveness or money or sexuality or marriage or family or parenting? So, so, So there's a call here. Timothy, press on. Press on in these sound words. Uh, but, but then secondly, uh, secondly, you see um, that the warning is we don't want to use godliness for our own gains, right? You see that at the end of five? Now, you can see that applying very easily to Christian pastors or ministers, right? That, that, that we want, it's kind of a holiness for hire, you know, that we're tempted to peddle God's word, to increase the crowds. We're tended to soften things, to have more people, you know, the bigger the audience, the bigger the crowd, the more diverse, you know, lower goes the common denominator, and so the temptation is to keep those crowds coming, uh, you want to, of course, lessen the, or, or even take away the sharpness of some of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, but but it's, or, or pastors who start out in the small church, and they go to the medium church, and they go to the bigger church and then the bigger church, because salaries increase. I think he's warning Timothy about a godliness for gain, his own personal gain. But you know, we can use our godliness, even if you're not in full-time vocational ministry. you can still use your godliness for gain. We can still appeal to God and say, you know, when all of a sudden I have a health crisis on the way, I'm going to start reading the Bible more. I'm going to really start growing godliness as if I can somehow, somehow hold God, you know, make him beholden to me to make sure that my health crisis pass, passes. Or we often will kind of walk in greater obedience to God if we know we're in trouble or if we know we need his help. And, and I want you to, to know that that bartering, that's running afoul with using godliness for personal gain. Or maybe you're growing in godliness just so that people admire you or think highly of you or put you in positions of authority. I think there's a warning for us here that our godliness, this growth in the sound words of our Lord, that when we turn it around and kind of monetize it or or we use it for our own benefit, that then we're entering into a transactional relationship with God that I don't think father daughter father son would carry so that's kind of the first warning that he gives here is to pursue the sound words of our lord that we might grow in this godliness not for personal gain but for personal joy now i do want to say that there is a gain and you see that in the second part there's a greater gain he says and it's kind of part of the second warning the second warning is as you grow in godliness that godliness is going to be gained when you, when you couple it with contentment, with contentment. Look with me at 6 to 8. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So what's he saying here? Notice the gain idea goes from 5 to 6, So there are some that are pursuing godliness for their personal gain, but Paul's saying, no, I'm all about some gain. By the way, the word gain could be translated profit or wealth. So Paul's introducing a different type of wealth, a different type of gain, that if you are a Christian, you want to enjoy this gain. And he says this gain comes as you move in the sound words of the Lord, as you grow in your understanding of God, but it's coupled with contentment. It's coupled with contentment. In other words, that you're growing in godliness with simplicity. What do I mean by that? Well, the material things of this world that often leave us so discontented can distract us from enjoying and pursuing God in full measure. You know, the things of this world, the shiny objects of life, they begin to get our attention rather than pursuing godliness. And when he says pursue godliness, he's not saying you're following a list of do's and don'ts. Pursuing godliness simply means you're becoming like God. You're thinking about God. You're enjoying God. I mean, think about God for a minute. I mean, he's created all things by his word. He right now gives you life and breath. He's opened your eyes to see the glory of the Son. He's opened your eyes to see your own sin. He's provided a Son uh, that would bear all of our sin and shame and guilt. And that through faith we can be reconciled to the Creator of all things, who now would be to us. Through faith, this is not because, this is not by virtue of your humanity. This is by virtue of faith in Christ we're reconciled to God how often th- those those simple but profound thoughts how often are they resident in your mind how often do you consider them and enjoy them and reflect on them see a lot of times we're thinking about we got bills to pay we got grass got to be cut we got these issues in the home we got this th-. and, and all these things and, and i got i got to move up the corporate ladder we, we got to do this and and all these things begin to pile on and distract us from simply this greater gain, which is godliness with contentment, with simplicity. You know, Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan pastor of the 17th century, and he says, contentment, he says, that's, that's the rare jewel of the Christian life, to be contented, to be at peace, to, be, to have that shalom, that I'm right with God, he's right with me, no matter whatever else is happening, I'm good. I'm good. I'm at peace. It's going to be okay. It's growing dark. I'm all right. It's growing bright. I'm okay. He says these gives these words in his book. Uh, he says, to be well-skilled in the mystery of contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of a Christian. Uh, th- th- to be contented you know, Paul talks about this in Philippians four, he says, "I have learned in whatever circum- um, I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me." So what's Paul saying here? You know, We generally take that Philippians 4.13, I can do anything through him who strengthens me, and it's usually on a t-shirt or it's on a football field, and it's kind of a, it's like spinach to Popeye. If I just take it, boom, I'm gone and I'm ready to roll. It's Superman, and after he gets out of the telephone booth, he's off, and it's not that. Do you see what he's saying? The beauty and the power of Christ allows us to suffer once and to enjoy plenty in times of feasting or in times of famine, knowing that Christ Jesus, this is really, uh, this is what we rally around, knowing that Christ Jesus has taken on flesh, dwelt among us, appealed to the Father to bear our sins, that we can live this life in the best of times or the worst of times. And we're going to be condemned. We're going to be, you will be just fine. He sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for us right now. Right now that you would understand these words, that I would understand these words, that we'd live in light of these words. He's interceding for us right now because he loves us so passionately. God has demonstrated his love for us and that, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So God is for us, those who have come to him in Christ. So that produces a contentment. But but Paul gives us another reason. Look what he says following. He says, you brought nothing in the world. You'll take nothing out with you. I mean, all the things of this world that distract us, that leave us discontented, we need this, this, and this to be happy. If we just have these things, then we would be satisfied. I can assure you, God, if you just give me this next level, then I'll stop asking. We live in a culture of more. We've got to have more. And they say, but you can't take anything with you. Uh, there is nothing material, there's nothing of earthly extract that is necessary for your spiritual advantage. Some of the things can be used that way, but they're, they're none, none are necessary. Now, you know this. You know, we have the joke, no, her, no U-Hauls behind hearses. And, and, and yet there's something in us that still drives us to want more. There's something that drives us to to find in whatever trinket we're pursuing. And and what he's saying is, you you have to remember, you came in without a stitch. And, And you're going out, and whatever they dress you in, you don't even get to choose. He says, if, if what we can eat and wear, with that we can be content. Now, I don't think he's criticizing the rich. I don't think he's calling the rich to feel bad about their riches. We're going to see in a couple of weeks what the riches need to do. What those, those who have been given wealth, he will say, and as for the rich among you. So here's a word for them, and we'll get to that in two weeks. He, he's not criticizing wealth here, I don't believe. But when, it's, when our happiness and our contentedness is contingent upon that, then it's a problem. And I think that's what he's warning us about here, to not be driven by. In other words, if, if your godliness and your pursuit of godliness is without contentment, you're going to have a roller coaster ride of faith. So think about John Calvin. One of his biographers tells the story about him He's the great reformer, Swiss reformer in Geneva, Switzerland, although he was born French, but he led this reformation in Geneva, and he was a very humble man, and uh, he was a great threat to the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, uh, they wanted to woo Geneva back to Rome. This is back in the 17th century. So one of the cardinals went to his house, wanted to meet the great threatening John Calvin to to Roman Catholicism. So he went up to the house and knocked on the door. It was a small house on Cannon Street, very unimpressive, and the door opens and it's John Calvin. And he's just wearing a black, just a simple black robe. And he was dumbfounded, didn't know what to say. None of the cardinals or the bishops or the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church would ever answer their door. They lived in large houses, estates, or even palaces. Here's John Calvin just in this dark little house on Cannon Street opening his own door. He, he, was, he was humble. He was contented. He was the leader of the Great Reformation, one of the key leaders of the Protestant Reformation. But he was content just to be the man who could open his own door. This is the kind of godliness with contentment that we're talking about. Would someone describe you as content? Would your friends describe you as content? Now, uh, contentment in Greek culture was a virtue, but the way that Greeks saw contentment was self-sufficiency. In other words, yeah, I've got everything I need, so I'm fine. That's not the contentment we're talking about here. We're talking about a contentment that can rise and fall with the circumstances of life. So in Hebrews 13, 5, he says, "...to be content in all things." He says, be content with whatever you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So a contentedness that we're talking about here is a contented rooted in the fact that God has says, my presence and my power will be enough for you to sustain you in this life, regardless of if you're entering times of sickness or if you're entering times of great success. In either context, I am here, I am present, I am enough. Is this the way you feel? Do you feel this kind of contentedness? Most of us don't. Most of us struggle. Uh, We we struggle greatly over the issue of trying to find a sweet spot of I'm comfortable and I'm happy. We, We look around at others, which is a major distraction. We look at what they have and what we don't have. And, we, we look, and and if you get something nice and something new and, and then someone gets something newer or maybe something nicer and, and your joy is quickly turned upside down into sorrow that you don't have now what they have. H- how do we overcome that? I mean, how do we find this contentment? How do we? Many of you are pursuing godliness and you're doing it well, but it's not with contentment because of the struggles you have. How do we find it? Well, we have to get a new view of things, don't we? We have to look at the things in our life, our homes, our relationships, our finances, our jobs. We have to look at those things differently. We have to look at them as temporal. We have to look at them as not necessary for my joy. How do you do this? Well, you know, one thing I tell you to do, go over on Durant and go spend an hour on Trash Mountain. I, I mean, that was that's big hill that was once a big dump. I remember... Driving the car up there and dumping all of yesterday's treasures. That's what everybody's sitting on. They're sitting on yesterday's treasures. The things I needed, the things I wanted, the things that were... They're all there under the hill. You can find them if you dig deep enough. Or, Or go walk through the cemetery and just remind yourself, all these people were thriving leaders. They were indispensable in the lives of other people. They're in the ground. I mean, we need to actively engage in this pursuit of of contentment. And we do it by recognizing that the things that we hold are temporal. They cannot satisfy you. I would also say pursue a simpler lifestyle. I, I mean, may I be as practical as, go through your clothes, go through your stuff. And what hasn't been used or what's not important, get rid of it. Practice that Art of simplicity. You know, reduce the apps on your phone. Take off the, you know, the constant reminders that we get from some new thread has popped out, or I don't even know what the words are, but your phone buzzes and rings up all the time. Turn those things off. I, I mean, s- s- go out and sit for an hour and think about your end. Or just think about what's most important to me. If I was told next week I've got one week to live, what are three things I would do? And this is the way we do it. You know, Blaise Pascal is a great French philosopher. I love these words, they've been so convicting to me. He says, I have often said that the sole cause of men's unhappiness or discontentedness is that he doesn't know how to stay quietly in his room. Think about it, though. If you were assigned the task of sitting in a chair and thinking for one hour, without your phone, without television, without conversation, and just think about your life, you'd be terrified. I I mean, you'd shift right into functionality, you'd shift right, it'd be a hard thing to contemplate as a lost art. And yet, part of the Christian discipleship through the years of the faith has been practicing the art of solitude just going out for an hour or going out for a day and just considering my life and considering the realities of God. What ought I to be doing? So that final day is a good day. What ought I to do? Uh, So this is the warning. This is the second warning. Pursue a godliness with contentment, and then you'll find true wealth. Thirdly, he tells us to guard our hearts. Look with me at 9 and 10. This might sting a little. He says, uh, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oh, th- this, is, this is important. We'll pick this up later, of course, in a couple of weeks. But But notice what he's speaking about here. He's telling us to guard our hearts, to guard our desires. Notice, whoever desires to become rich, whoever desires. This idea of of wanting, of desiring to be rich. But he follows it up with the love of money. For the love of money is the root of all all kinds of evils. Now hear me clearly, because I hear this usually misquoted half the times I hear it quoted. Money is not the root of all evils. So money is not the root of all evils. Money is not perfectly neutral, I don't think, but it's not the root. It's the love of money. So you know how a root in a plant gives life to the plant? Well, the love of money is like the root. It's the culprit. It gives life to desires that can lead us into all kinds of evils. So what's he mean by this? Well, I think what he means by this is that if I really want something, if I really want to be rich, I'm, I'm going to be increasingly tempted to perhaps uh, fudge the truth at work a little bit so I don't lose that possibility for promotion. I may lie over here. I may cheat. I may put my family's well-being in harm's way because I'm going to work so hard because I want to climb the corporate ladder so that I can be secure. It's the love, the desire for riches that lead us into all kinds of trouble. But what does it mean, the love of money? I think when he says, for the love of money is the root of all evils, he's saying that when we begin to see money as something that will provide for us or take care of our needs or satisfy our wants, that's what the love of money is. The love of money is I begin to see what it can provide for me, and then I put my hope in that. The love of money is really an alternative to trust in God's future grace. In other words, if I just get enough, then I don't need to worry about next week or next year. And so it becomes a place of rest for me, a trust. So he says, for the love of money, the desire to be rich will lead you into all kinds of evils. More and more money will lead you into different types and different abilities to sin. Do you see how deceptive it is? Notice he says it's a snare, it's a temptation, it's a trap. It's deceptive because money provides so many good things for us. And so we can begin to trust in it. We can begin to rest in it. We can begin to, whew, I'm I'm okay now. So it's like the rich young man, or I don't know how young he is, but in Luke 12, when his farms began to produce profits, he built barns. They produced more profits, so he built bigger barns. They had more and more profits. He built bigger and bigger barns. And finally, he hit the point where he says, okay, I'm good. Now I can take life easy and rest. So he's trusting in them. And Jesus says, you fool, this very night, your life is required of you, and you will have an appointment with one who gave you all that stuff. Are you ready for that? So it's deceptive because it seems to be a legitimate place of hope. And Paul's saying, I'm warning you, don't go there because it's dangerous. Notice what it says. The love of money, it will plunge you into destruction. This isn't bumps and bruises in life. This is plunging you. That Greek word means you're sinking to the bottom of the lake like a rock and you're not coming up again. And I mean, all the destruction that we've brought into our families over the, under the banner of I'm trying to secure and take care of my family, and yet we haven't. We've sometimes missed being a mother like we should have, or a father, or we've, we've not dealt or not engaged well in our church relationships because I'm too busy at work, or I've, I've been playing fast and loose with the truth at work so that I make sure I stay in the right group to keep going up the ladder. Think of all the things that we've stepped in to try to secure the almighty dollar. But but it's even worse than that. Those are present-day evils. He says some have wandered away from the faith. I mean, and they pierce themselves. This is a self-inflicted wound. This isn't coming from... You're not worrying about the pagans and the culture going down the toilet. It's self-inflicted. It's us doing it to us. I mean, we pierce ourselves, pursuing things, not trusting in God. They've wandered away. Let me give you an example. You know, Demas, you don't know him personally, he's in scriptures. But in Colossians 4.14, he was a co-worker with Paul. In fact, in, in uh, Philippians 1, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke my fellow workers. So here's Demas, fellow worker with the great apostle Paul. In the second letter to Timothy, he says to Timothy, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here is a deconversion. Here is one who's wandered away from the faith. It's Demas, for goodness sake. He was a co-worker with Paul. What's in Thessalonica that drew him? Was it a woman? Was it family? Was it money? Was it an opportunity? Why would he leave? He was in love with the present world. Something was there that was just like a siren, just drawing him. That's what he's warning us about. So what do you crave most in life? What do you want most? Ask yourself these questions. Say, what would make me most happy? What do I fear most losing? If I just got this, then I'd be content. Those are identifying these cravings that I'm speaking about that Paul's warning us about. Uh, Try to identify what they are, and then remind you of their deceptive power, that they lead you into trust. They lead you into hope. They lead you into false contentment. But let me remind you, they can't satisfy you. They won't last. You know that they'll have to be. You don't have to be 25 years old to know that these things have made me happy and you already know that they haven't because you've moved on to the next level. So, so, so don't be deceived by them. We have to fight them. Now, this is what we'll talk about in the next two weeks, but I just want to touch on two things here. The way to fight this kind of love for money, it goes back, and I get busted on all the time for this, and, but you'll thank me one day. You know, the, you contemplate your own death. You know, Augustine said, the most effectual medicine for greed is to think daily upon your own death. This isn't morose. It's not, you got to wear black. It's just considering the brevity of life. And how do I want to live in light of that? But there's also a call for generosity. And this is what I want to hit on later, but to be generous will break the back of greed. To give what you don't think you can spare, it'll break the back of greed. But I'm going to save that for another time. So he gives us three warnings here. Three warnings is that you are to pursue the sound words of our Lord. And it's to, that doctrine is to influence your life so that you become healthier. If you're not becoming healthier, then what are you listening to? And what's driving, what's governing your decisions, as Edward says? Secondly, we want a godliness, but I want a godliness with contentment. That there's an increasing simplicity to our lives, people. We have more conveniences and more appliances than any time in the history of humanity, and yet we're busied and fractured, and con- we don't. 150 years ago, people had to have servants to do what you have sitting plugged into electrical outlets in your house right now. They should afford us time like all the servants afforded the kings of old. Is our life simpler, though? And then, and last, this love, this love. What do you love most? Guard your hearts against the beauty of God's creation. Don't use the gifts of God to replace him. Let's take a moment and ask God for, for perhaps wisdom for how, and ask the spirit of God specifically to bring about a measure of help to understand this correctly, and then I'll pray for us in a moment.